Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. Today we're doing the first of a number of interviews uh, with Noel Cruz. Welcome, Noel. Hi, Dave. Um, Noel, you've got, had a long career in aviation. Um, I think you just said it was 51 years. 51 years yeah. since I first started flying, yeah, and a few years before that as a kid, just hanging on the fence of all the airports around the place. Okay, where are you originally from and where did you grow up? Uh, which airports were you hanging on the fence? Ah, well, where am I from? I was born in Christchurch, would you believe? Okay. I am really a New Zealander, despite what some people think. <laughs> and uh, interesting you should ask that. One of my first memories when I was about two years old, I am sure, as a little toddler standing with my mother underneath the clothesline, was watching a DC-3 flyover that had just taken off from the airport because okay. we only live four miles down the road. In fact, the house is still there, despite the, the latest uh, earthquakes and all. Right. And uh, and that's sort of imprinted on my memories. Probably one of my first memories was of an aeroplane. That must be significant. Yeah, definitely. However, when uh, when I was three, uh, my parents who were both Australians and had been in, uh, in in Christchurch since the Depression, moved back to Australia and took me with them. Right. And from that point on, when as I grew up, I thought I was an Australian. It wasn't until many, many years later when the Air Force wanted to send me overseas and I went to get a passport. And the Australian government said, well, he doesn't belong to us. <laughs> but I realised I was in New Zealand. Oh, oh dear. Okay. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, I grew up in Melbourne. Got all primary education schools and so forth at Melbourne. And as it transpired, from about the age of 10, we moved to a house which was only four miles from Moorabbin Airport. Right. Which right. is the big GA airport in, in, uh, in Melbourne. Yes. And I spent every weekend at the airport hanging over the fence looking at airplanes flying models and that sort of thing so that's where it really started okay and what are the um, <coughs> what types of aircraft do you remember looking at when you were a kid well again interesting you should mention because one of the airplanes that burned in my memory i saw there and this is must have been about 1954-55 yep. was a silver bullet of an airplane a tail dragger which I didn't know the name of at the time, but it turned out to be a Ryan STM. And I fell in love with that and wanted one. And guess what? <laughs> I think I've got that aeroplane right now. <laughs> that exact aeroplane? I don't know. I oh, don't know right. which one it was. Um, but there was a whole bunch of them around at that time. Yep. And um, I've got one of them anyway, yeah, right. which is another story for later on. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. also the Tiger Moths. I mean... A friend of mine uh, and I saved up our pennies and bought a joy flight for a, a 10 shillings each, which was a dollar. Yeah. Dollar each, and it was in a puss moth. Oh, right. Yeah. It was a three-seater, so the pilot's up the front and the two kids down the back. And it was a dark and stormy day, but we are going to have our fly anyway. I think we were his only customers all day. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave us a kind of extended circuit for our dollar, and that was, was great. And I think we were, I was about 11 at that time. Yeah, oh, wow. First I've been in a couple of airliners as my parents took me around, but this is the first real flight that I did myself here. Yeah. And it was all sorts of wonderful aeroplanes in those days, half of which you just don't see anymore. You know, the right. old Fairchilds and the Fletcher, not Fletchers, the Stinsons and all those things, a lot of biplanes. 
And of course the Royal Victorian Aero Club, which was right there, was a massive organisation and they had dozens and dozens of aeroplanes, you know, mostly Tiger Moss when I was a kid. Okay. The primary train was still Tiger Moss, so they were all over the place there. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, oh, it would be. <coughs> and and the Aero Club you actually got involved with a little bit later, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, uh, I took up flying model aeroplanes, as most kids do, except in those days it was all control line because no one could afford or a radio control machine, of course. Radio control in those days was all driven by valves, you had to have a truck to put it in. <laughs> and I was a member of a local model area club which used to meet at the airport because there was lots of vacant land right next to the airport. So we go down there virtually every weekend and fly models. And between model flying, I'd just lean over the fence and watch what was happening. And about that period, the area club was re-equipping with chipmunks. Okay. Replacing all these old tiger moss with these really streamlined, new, sleek chipmunks. <laughs> And, uh, of course, they were still in the traditional sense. They didn't have a starter motor. Yeah. Um, so they had to be hand-propped, and they leaked oil out of their gypsy, so you had to top them off with oil. And I got to know one of the guys who worked on the tarmac there. Uh, they had two guys permanently just swinging props and refueling, re-oiling, and so forth. And talking about these things, so he let me crawl around the place in the hangars and all. And then he said to me one day, he said, look, are you interested in a job? Because you know, one of the, the, the slots is going vacant. Now I'm 16 yeah. you know, and I'm really seriously thinking about flying somehow. Yeah. So I immediately wandered straight into the CFI and said, I believe there's a job going, I want it. Right. And he said, it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> He'd seen me around, so he knew I was interested. Yeah. So I got this job uh, of a weekend. First, it started out only one, one day of a weekend every alternate weekend. Yeah. Right? So one in four. And uh, it was a fairly long day because you, st- you had to have the airplanes ready for the first takeoff at seven o'clock in the morning. And then you had to wait until they finished to pack because they all had to be packed away in a hangar. Right. All their bright, shiny chipmunks could not be left outside. And of course they had two of these old Bellman type hangars into which you could stack 13 chipmunks they had at this stage. Wow. I became very good at stacking hangars. In fact, we'd stack it in such a way that uh, for the guys who came on the next day, they had to pick the key airplane to get it out because they didn't move the key airplane. It was a hell of a tangle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I used to pedal my bicycle, leave home at about four o'clock in the morning and pedal my bicycle to the, to the airfield. And by about 5.30, we were dragging airplanes out of the hangar because we had to start them up and warm them up and uh, make sure they're ready for flight because the first wave started at 7 a.m., which in the middle of a Melbourne winter was pretty bloody cold. Uh, but it was good. It was good value because um, my father suddenly realized that his 16-year-old son had a, a goal. Right. Uh-huh. And he was very relieved that you know, I already had a sense of purpose. So he made me an offer. He said, look, for every dollar you earn, I'll match you dollar for dollar. All right. Yeah, which was cool. Yeah. So for about, I suppose, eight months from the time I started till the time I turned 17, because in those days you couldn't get a student license until you were 17. Um, I just worked and he threw in the extra dollars and so forth and I amassed enough to then really hit it hard so that by the time I, uh, I turned 17 I was ready to go yeah, yeah. and by then of course all the flying instructors knew me and the CFI knew me, in fact the CFI really knew me because I can recall one of the, one of the highlights when I, I became the senior tarmac terrier you see. Yeah. And, uh, part of the job of course was to swing the propellers and people would taxi and you'd Someone else again, you swing the prop and get them started. You've got to know each individual chipmunk, how many how many tickles on the primer and how many turns of the prop before you called contact and all the rest of it. But the big problem was in the middle of winter, 
when they all had to be sort of warmed up because the, the gypsy major has a, uh, <coughs> pardon me, a dry, a dry sump engine. So it's yeah. got a big oil tank, which takes a little while to warm up first thing. Once they started going, because they were working all, all day, every day, they were a very busy place, with no trouble keeping them warm. And the deal was we had to drag them out and push them onto the, the parking area, which was hard, it took two people to push these things, and then start the engine and sit there and wait for it to warm up and run up. All this took forever. Yeah. Really did, took forever per aeroplane. So myself and this other young guy who joined me got this brilliant idea. We'd drag a chipmunk out, one of us would hop in the cockpit, start it up, and he would taxi it to the chocks and chock it, tie the stick back, set the throttle and get out and come back. And the next guy was ready for the next one. So he'd taxi it. So eventually we had 13 chipmunks sitting out there on the chocks all with the engines running. By then, of course, number one had warmed up enough so you go and run it up, check the mags and shut it down. Yeah. And this worked fine for a couple of weekends until the chief flying instructor turned up early one day and saw his entire fleet sitting there with the engines running and two 16-year-old kids looking after them. <laughs> And went berserk <coughs> and prattled off in German because <coughs> his name was uh, John Bally and he was an ex Stuka pilot from World War II. <laughs> and he had a bit of a temper, which was interesting. Anyway, so he was running around shutting them down as fast as work, saying, No, don't do that yet, we haven't run them up. And read the riot act to us about doing this, so we had to get another hour earlier then. Oh. And as, just an aside, too, the, the deputy chief flying instructor was a guy named Hans Rosa, and he was an ex Spitfire pilot from World War II. Battle of Britain days. Okay. And they used to have interesting arguments. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the genre. These were all these oh, all ex World War Two guys were the, the, the senior pilots, so the whole bunch of junior ones there too. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so you really just got to know the whole deal. So by the time I sort of declared myself that I was ready to fly, <clears throat> they uh, they gave me to this young flying instructor, who as it turned out was the wrong flying instructor, he was fairly new, yeah. and that's when I first started to understand that there are flying instructors and there are flying instructors. Uh, but then I started to, to learn to fly. Of course, every weekend I'd go down there and fly, and sometimes uh, I'd actually skip school, because by then I was going to college and I was doing an engineering course in college. I was aiming towards aeronautical engineering, yeah. but uh, never quite got that far. Right. <coughs> Pardon me, I've got a bit of a problem with that here. <coughs> But if it was a nice sunny morning, instead of hopping on the train and heading to the college, I'd head off on my bicycle to the airport and fly all morning and then go to college, and my parents never knew. But they did notice that the, the amount of money that they were contributing and I was contributing was de getting depleted really quickly. <laughs> but um, I flew quite regularly. I did about 80, 85 hours, I suppose, on the old chipmunk. Okay. And somewhere along the way, after I got my private pilot's license, and um, and learned to navigate, which was all part of it in those days. It wasn't separate. <clears throat> I then got checked out on this new airplane they bought, this high wing thing with a tricycle undercarriage with a nose, a wheel at the front. Okay. It was a Cessna 172. Oh, right. And I can remember I was really concerned that this wheel in the front would get in the way. You know, <laughs> how do you land something? I discovered on the landing that it was actually a lot easier than landing a tail track. <laughs> at the time, I was quite concerned. That how do you land something with a wheel that gets in the way up the front here? And I puddled around the countryside a little bit, but it wasn't my style of aeroplane. The chipmunk was mine because I also learned aerobatics straight up. I didn't learn aerobatics during the actual flight training as I used to teach in subsequent years. Yeah. But all of the, uh, because of, you know, from the, the tiger moth and, and the chipmunk uh, uh, era, everyone there did aerobatics in it. You know, it was quite an accepted thing. And so, I was exposed to it, and of course, the instant I graduated, I said, right, now, we've got to learn aerobatics, so I did this uh, 
is their abatic uh, course. Yeah. I can't remember exactly how many hours now, which taught me how to flop around the, the sky in a not very pretty fashion as in, in, when I look back on it. But the problem was that they had an aerobatic area which was about 20 minutes transit time from sort of the Bankstown area to get to go way, way out there to do aerobatics. And so if you just hired the aeroplane for an hour, by the time you got there, it was time to turn around and come back again. Right, right. So I used to hire the aeroplane for two hours. And I'd head out there and, and then have about an hour's worth of aerobatics and the rest was transit time home again. So this really knocked up the, up the time. But I sort of taught myself badly a whole bunch of aerobatic maneuvers which I think were not on the catalogue <laughs> some of which I don't think I could repeat now but the dear old chipmunk just handled it and uh, I got fairly good at it but there were things about the way I was taught which even then I thought there's something wrong here you know this guy's not telling me something like there's a big secret here and I was actually started teaching myself a few things or when I once I teach discovering for myself what to any sort of experienced pilot should be the bleeding obvious. Yes. But this young guy, whom I thought was God initially, had never mentioned or never picked me up on what I was doing wrong. So this was a little disappointing. Um, but I sort of stuck with it for quite some time yeah. until finally um, I didn't know quite what to do about it, but I had to sort of get taught all over again. And that's when the Air Force rescued me. Ah, right. See. right. And I was very pleased. Uh, but again, too much detail about the Air Force training at this stage. Uh, yeah. I can now look back on two distinct styles of training, two distinct standards of training, which happened back to back. Because when we got to the Air Force, they said, well, good, you know, you, you, we know you've got a license, but we're going to start all over again, which they did with everyone on the pilot's course. And that was quite different. <clears throat> to the interesting, and this is an aside to the military training, but sometime in the early part of my military training course in the, in the Windjill, um, the CIA and in Melbourne at the time had a bit of a purge, as they do regularly, and they still do. Flight training standards are not good enough. We we're going to send our examiners around to check out all these people. Right? Yeah. And that happens about every five years in just about every country I've been in. Nothing changes. It's just, you know, they pontificate for a while. Yeah, yeah. And they singled out a couple of young flight instructors that really needed to see how it was done better. And they were going to send them to the Air Force Basic Flight Training School to see how it was done. Guess who turned up in the back seat of my windshield? My old flying instructor. <laughs> and it was so embarrassing because my new flying instructor, military flying instructor, knew it because I had to say to him, he's the guy that taught me. Oh, is he? So did he really rub it into him? Like, well, Cadet Cruz, this is how we do it in the Air Force, not the way you were taught before. And this poor kid in the back was cringing. I was embarrassed. And my military flying instructor was having a wonderful time really rubbing this thing into him. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I've never seen the guy since, never heard of him since. I think he might have gone away and shot himself. <laughs> but it was interesting because it stood me in good stead for many, much, many years later when I sort of understood, if you like, the right and the wrong way to, to teach people to fly. Right. But, you know, that got me started. I, uh, I had determined at that point that I was going to fly for a career and my, my father was A, relieved and B, concerned as to how the hell I was going to do it and how I was going to afford it because even in those days, whilst it seems cheap by today's standards, we were paying five guineas, which for those people who don't know what that is, that's five pounds. Sorry, um, now I've forgotten. 21 shillings. 20 shillings was a pound. Five, that's right, anyway, 10% extra. 
which is equivalent to about 10 bucks today. Okay. So you think about $10 per hour to learn to fly. What does it cost you these days? About $250 just for the airplane. You know? yeah, yeah. Unbelievably expensive. Or the same price, but our dollar has been totally destroyed over those years. True. <clears throat> Actually, um, you know, comparing now to then, another thing, do you think that kids go and hang over the fence like they used to and be able to get involved that way? These uh, days? Well, I don't think they're afforded the opportunity. I actually had this conversation with one of the senior people at Hamilton Airport only about a week ago. Right. We've now, be, how can I put it? We've gone over the top with this security rubbish. Yes. Okay, yes, there's always been a bit of security. But in a country like New Zealand, I don't think there are any terrorists here, quite frankly. But they have these cyclone wire fences everywhere. They haven't made any provision for a parking area for people just to park and look at airplanes. Yeah. Because I see them around Hamilton Airport. They park on the end of the runway. Yep. Two or three cars. They squeeze down the little track towards my hangar there and try and peer around the corner. There is no concession. Most people don't want to go to the airline terminal and go upstairs because they feel that that's airline people. And also they've got to pay $10 an hour in the car park there, something like that. So they just want to go and take, show little Johnny some airplanes. There is nowhere to do it conveniently. Exactly. Even when I go to Ardmore Airfield, um, it's better, obviously, because it's a GA airport. But there's no one site where you can just drive up, park your car and go and lean on the fence and watch. It's all sort of populated with buildings and clubs and don't enter here and all that sort of stuff and restrictions. And I think that's a shame because I remember back in Moravian Airport there was this literally a grass park with seats and bins and you could have a picnic. And there was a post and rail fence. That's all it was, a simple post and rail fence you could lean on and there was the airport. And it was a very busy airport and airplanes would taxi past and there was just this cloud of activity. And at any given time of a weekend over and above all the kids just you know, 100 yards away flying models like I was doing, there was three or four families at minimum having a picnic with little toddlers running around and kids leaning, just getting enthusiastic about airplanes. Yeah, yeah. I don't see that anymore. Right, okay. Um, there's possibly another aspect to it, I suppose. I, I, I don't know because it's not my generation, but in my day, airplanes were still something magic. Yeah. They really were. Yeah. Wow, to be able to fly. Now it seems the average kid to be so passe. Um, again, a lot of these aeroplanes are just, they're all made of plastic and they've got TV screens in the cockpit, which is not my style. Yeah. Uh, but okay, given that this, that's modernity, they probably think that the chipmunk was, or well, the old Tiger Moth pilots probably thought the chipmunk was a bit too modern because it's got a closed <laughs> cockpit and all the rest of it. Yeah. But a lot of the, the people that I talk to who fly them sort of strings, oh yeah, well, I'm just going to be an airline pilot. It's, it's, it's become a bit too ordinary. Yes, yeah, yeah I agree with that. From my point of view. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be that bubbling enthusiasm to just get your butt in the sky and go for a fly. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's more about where can I go. Indeed, on that point, I, I've spoken to many young kids who said, oh yeah, I've got to upgrade to the next you know, fastest higher flying airplane. I said, why? Well, so you can get there faster. Get where faster? Well, where I want to go? Where do you want to go? Well, anywhere. I said, so you've spent all of this time, all this money getting the license to fly, and then you want to get on the ground as quick as you can. Yeah. And they sort of look at me like I'm some silly old bugger, because I've just gone and bought a 90 horsepower, 90 knot airplane, so I can puddle around the countryside. I tell people I can very, right now, I can very easily convert a one-hour flight into two to two and a half hours. I don't fly in a straight line. I meander. I go over there and have a look at that and fly down that river and have a look at that for a while. Yeah. Because I like being in the sky. Right. 
right? I don't treat it as a transport vehicle, whereas most of the attitude now is it's a, it's a means of getting from A to B. Um, so maybe they all think I'm just a silly old bugger now. <laughs> well, no, I can, I can totally see what you're saying. And, and, you know, there must be some way that we can try and enthuse that, that enjoyment again. Oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> good luck. I think one of the killers is it is comparatively more expensive. Yeah. Uh, going back to what I was saying before, for five guineas an hour, yes, that sounds really cheap. But I remember at the same time, my father bought the house we lived in for four thousand pounds, four thousand pounds, yeah. you know, which is eight thousand dollars. Yeah. Buy a house for eight thousand dollars, you couldn't even get the door to your garage for eight thousand dollars these days. So proportionally, I think the idea, not that the the physical cost of fuel or maintenance of the aeroplane or even the overheads of buying the aeroplane is significantly more expensive in its own right. But there are so many add-ons these days, so many regulations, so many bureaucrats and public servants who are charging extra think hoops you've got to jump through yeah. to qualify and, and you've got to pay money. I mean, this latest round of charges we've just heard about from the CA here in New Zealand has had people totally aghast yes. yep. for silly little things. They're charging an absolute fortune. And so a lot of it just turns people off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay, there's this government subsidy thing which is working right now within this country. It's one of the few countries left in the world that does it. It used to be about $120,000, repayable admittedly over a period, it's fine, but that's just been cut in half which means that some kid who wants to become a, a career pilot now has to find his own $80,000. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, um, I spent 80 hours at, at $5 an hour. What's that? $400, $4,000, and my father kicked in half. Yeah. And that probably wasn't easy for him, but I think it's even harder for someone now. $80,000 is a lot of money. So less people are coming to it from that point of view because... The advertising, the flying schools are all orientated towards we will train you to be an airline pilot because that's where the big bucks are. Yeah, yeah. They're not really. <laughs> not anymore. No, no. Um, and the whole idea of come fly for fun just to enjoy yourself doesn't seem to be pushed very hard at all. So I don't know what the answer is. Um, again, skipping ahead, I suppose, to another talk, but when I ran the Sydney Aerobatic School, a lot of People said, well, how did you survive just doing what you did? Well, I actually survived quite well because my average clientele were middle-aged guys who had a career, and women in many cases, who already had a career, had always wanted to learn to fly but didn't have the resources or the time when they were younger. But now that they were a successful doctor or lawyer or architect or whatever, they had the dough. So they came to learn to fly. Yeah. And I, I had a high court judge learn to fly with me, right. this sort of thing. Right. Um, so I, I didn't have that many young people. Had a few, ones with enough jump to do it, yeah. I admired them. So it's a different style of clientele to what you see going through these commercial pilot courses and looking to you know, start a career in, in flying. None yeah. of these people wanted a career in flying, they just want to fly. Yes. Yeah. And so they were really a pleasure to teach because they just enjoyed every minute of it. That was really great. Yeah. Right. Skipping ahead now. <laughs> <laughs> So what sort of, uh, at this stage, you, you're now flying, and what drove you to join the RAAF? Oh, to fly the hottest thing in the sky, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in parallel with the actual flying, going back to this, this teenage years, also I had, a, I had two experiences which really drew me to it. I, my father took me to an air show at 
the RAF base at Laverton. I must have been, I suppose, about 10, something like that. Yeah. Long before I was let out of the house by myself anyway. And that would have been about 1950, well, what, 1954. And that was when the Sabre had just been introduced. The, um, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force in those days had meteors. They were serving in Korea with meteors. And they spotted this thing called an F-86 up there. And obviously, so we got one of them. And the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation in, uh, in Melbourne actually had a good relationship with North American Aviation. They were the only company outside the US to build the P-51. Yes. Yep. A lot of the, the Mustangs around this local area here are Australian-made Mustangs. And so they, they continued this contract and they got a deal with the, uh, uh, the North American Aviation to build the F-86. 86E model is the one they chose, but they modified it. They, it was all locally made, so they said, well, they already identified a few faults with the, the F-86 from the, the Korean War. It wasn't powerful enough and the guns were too small yep. and didn't have a decent fire control system. So they modified it, and actually they ripped the fuselage apart and changed 70% of it. Okay. Uh, the whole structure had to change because they hung a much more powerful engine, the Rolls-Royce Avon, which had 50% more power, but it was a thousand pounds lighter. Right. So they had to move the engine back. They then put two 30 millimeter gap, uh, not gap, a 30 millimeter cannon in the front to replace the 0.5 pea shooters that the thing had, which gave it a one kilometer active effective range and big bullets, these things. Yeah. And they put a twin gyro gun, so and a whole bunch of things. So they made it sort of almost the next generation of fighter. Uh, it sort of moved into the, the next era. And they started coming off the assembly line uh, in the early 50, 54, 55. And that's about when I went to this air show because it was the big demo. Yeah. It was going to break the sound barrier for the crowd. Um, and there was every military air show in those days, 100,000 people would turn up because they were really good. Yeah. And they had, I don't know who the pilot was, but it must have been about the, I it was the prototype or the first, second or third airplane off the, off the line. And so he climbed up to 40,000 feet when you couldn't see him, but I had his intercom, his radio patched over the PA so you could hear him climbing to 40,000 feet. And he was dramatizing a bit too. Yeah. And then of course, uh, so right, rolling over, diving, Mach point nine, straight out of the movies, you know, yeah. nine, five, and, all, and he's counting off the Mach numbers, Mach one, Mac 105, Mac 11, and of course there's deathly silence because I didn't know, and obviously 90% of the people in the crowd didn't know that sound only travels at 1100 feet per second, and he's at 40,000 feet, so it's going to take a little while for the shockwave to reach And I could see people looking at each other saying, Yeah, so what's going to happen? And suddenly, bang! There's this massive tri- you know, triple bang, and everyone leapt into the sky. and. <laughs> And I just thought, yeah, man, <laughs> this was so cool. <laughs> of course, the, he then continued the dive right down the dot feet and come whistling across the airfield at about 600 plus knots, uh, which people don't realize today. They look at all these modern jets, which go whistling down the road and say, oh, wow, isn't that really fast? They don't go any faster today than they did back in the 50s. They could. I mean, an F-111 could do uh, Mach 1.5 down the runway, but he would shatter every window within a five mile radius so you just, they don't do it. Right. At least the Sabre, so they only do about 500 knots down. They all do. The F-22s, you name it, they don't go faster than 500 knots. Yeah. The Sabre could do that. Easy. Uh, except it couldn't go to Mach 2 down the runway. So you actually don't see anything at an air show any faster these days. But he came hooking down the runway and it was the fastest thing anyone's seen. So I was hooked. I really was hooked. And then a short time later, by coincidence, one of the friends that I had at school his father actually worked at the Commonwealth Aircraft Factory. Oh, right. I don't know what he did. 
he might have even been the floor sweeper. But they had a Christmas party. <clears throat> so all the families invited to the standard old Christmas party. <clears throat> and so he said, would you like to come along? Knowing that I was totally wrapped in this aeroplane. Yeah. So yeah, so I tagged along to, with his family to this family Christmas party. And I can recall in the hangar, or in the, in, at Fisherman's Bend where they used to test fly them from, there was a saver up on jacks so that they could work the undercarriage and the flaps and, and, and the speed brakes and all with it and show the crowd what happened, all these things open and close the rest of them. And I can remember the, the guy with his little little PA system talking to the, to, to the assembled people there. The guy who was in the cockpit, who was his 21st birthday that day, just a young tad yeah. who'd been working there, and he was given the job of working the speed brakes in the undercarriage. And the coincidence, the reason he mentioned this was the coincidence was he was sitting in Sabre number 921. On the nose was this 21. So this was the 21st Sabre off the line and this 21-year-old guy was working the things. And that stuck in my mind because it was only a, a few years later that I actually flew 921. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> it wasn't that long at that yeah. point. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I fell in love with this aeroplane and the whole idea of just flying this hot ship, because it was. Maybe it wasn't the hottest ship in the world even then, but it was certainly the hottest ship south of, south of the, the equator. And I, I just had to fly it. I didn't know how. So I joined the Air Training Corps and learned all that stuff that they did, saluting and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of enjoyed that. That wasn't too bad. A bit of regimentation was not, not too bad for a kid when you're 16, 17. But also it involved talking with people with aeroplanes. Because again, Air Training Corps back in those days had as the sort of senior people, the adults involved, ex-World War II pilots. Right, right. We had one guy who was... Uh, reserve flight lieutenant I suppose I don't recall his name but he was badly burned at one side of his face because he actually parked a Spitfire in a, in a haystack on fire oh, wow. and got out of it okay because he said you've never seen anyone run so fast and they used to tell these real anecdotal funny stories yeah. and he crashed several Spitfires apparently he was quite proud of the fact he survived about three crashes <laughs> none of which were due to enemy action he said <laughs> um so you, you got to hang on the on the on every word of these old guys and talking about it, and of course then they showed us all the old sort of instructional movies as they had in those days, straight out of the World War Two and how aeroplanes flew and how you worked the old man, manual loop on the ADF and all sort of stuff. And I just loved it. I just fell in love with it. So eventually, of course, I just knew what it was I was going to do. I was going to fly, and I was going to fly one of those hot ships. So it wasn't actually a a matter of deciding I was going to join the Air Force, it just seemed to be inevitable. Just, it was just, I just had to do it. Yeah. And that, fortunately, I saw, perhaps helped me when I came to the Air Force interviews because I was just so adamant. This is what I was going to do because I remember one of the questions in the interview when I went to the Air Force recruiting was, well, what if we don't select you? What are you going to do? And I was aghast. I, I could recall actually looking at him saying, what do you mean you're not going to accept me? <laughs> I, you have, I, this is what I'm going to, I think somehow that must have impressed them that I was, I was just so enthusiastic. Yeah. Or, or maybe, I don't, I don't know what they would have thought about it, but yeah, I, I, had, I had not even conceived of not doing anything else. It was as simple as that. Right. right. Yeah. And uh, so they, they, they let me do it. They let me do it then. Yeah. I think um, just picking up on the point you made about the, uh, the older generation that were with the air training corps there being world war ii guys that might have something to do with the difference now from then the younger generation had these guys around who were telling quite amazing stories of flying and 
and all that, and that's not really around anymore, is it? Um, yes and no. Two th- well, I think there's two, two answers to that. There are still a whole bunch of old guys around who can tell stories. Maybe not World War II, but I mean, we've had Korea and Vietnam since then. Sure, yeah. And, and they weren't a walk in the park either. That's right. So there's some vets from those who can tell some pretty serious stories uh, about flying. I, I could tell a few myself. Yeah. But the Air Training Corps, as it was in Australia, I don't know what it was like in New Zealand then, but the Air Training Corps was actually created or, or treated as a branch of the military yeah. and was funded through a military budget. And so we would go to our camps on military bases and fit in and eat in the airmen's mess and all that sort of and then the bean cars got it and said it's too damn expensive and canned it completely. They now have an air training corps over there, but it's more like scouts. Right. It's held in the local hall. They don't have any direct involvement with the military. Sure, they may go and visit the base or so, but they're treated more like visitors rather than part of the scene. Yeah. And so I think some of the people, the more senior people who conduct these scouting groups, quite frankly, are not even aviators. Okay. Um, I believe there's an air training court type arrangement here in New Zealand, Air League or something, but you might correct me there. There's, there's both actually. <clears throat> Is there? Yeah, there's okay. the Air Training Corps and the Air League. Well, is the Air Training Corps actually associated with the military, do you know? Uh, to be honest, I, I, I'm, not, oh. I'm not sure how closely related they are these days. Yeah. Okay, um, I think it's all a budgetary thing. So this dissociation hasn't helped. It, it feels, I would imagine, would feel less like being in the Air Force. I mean, I actually felt like I was in the Air Force. When I was in the Air Training Corps, I made it to a sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> I was a sergeant cadet, uh, went all these courses and so forth, and you actually did it on an air face, and they took you flying in a, in a DC-3. <laughs> Dakota, I'm sorry, Dakota. Yeah. Um, so you felt more like it. I, I, it appears to me, I may be completely wrong here, that that association is not quite there, which suggests to me that maybe some of the old assaults who could actually become part of it and, and help just talk to these kids and not being recruited or just not interested in being part of something which isn't that closely allied. I don't know, I'm sort of way over depth here, I don't really know. But um, around here locally uh, in in the Hamilton area, I've not seen or heard of any of these groups at all. Well, there's certainly an ATC um, squadron in Hamilton. Is there? Uh, Yeah, yeah, in um, Day Street in Hamilton East. Okay. Uh, But, um, I mean, I was never in the ATC, I went straight into the Air Force. uh, I don't know a lot about it myself, to be honest. But yeah, it would seem more realistic to me to have their meeting hall on an airfield somewhere, so they could hang over the fence if there was a fence to hang over and look at airplanes. Yes, you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. They all seem to be separate now. Yeah, they're more like a scouting group. They're not actually out at an airfield, and they're not hanging over the fence because local regulations won't let you hang over a fence anymore because you might be Osama bin Laden's son or something like that. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Noel, for this uh, first episode and we'll uh, revisit your story very very soon with uh, episode two of your life (laughs) in aviation. To be continued, yes, okay. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Okay, Dave, thanks. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.